Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Dunk Smith from Lowman Dental Care in Alexandria, West Dumbartonshire. Duncan, welcome. Great to have you on the programme today. Hi, there, Scott. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, given everything that's going on at the present time with the COVID-19 outbreak, what I wanted to ask first and foremost is, drawing on your own experience, what advice would you give to somebody who is maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role? Well, my advice to them would be to very much listen to the people under you, is to listen to your staff um, and get to know your staff. I think the time has been and gone where, you know, I think leaders can be aloof and approachable. I think you've got to be very much, you've got to be very much with your staff. You've got to be on their level while maintaining that difficult line, you know, trading the difficult line and, uh, Keeping things, still keeping a little bit of distance so you've got that authority, but you've very much got to be on your level all the time, I would say. Absolutely. It's very important for leadership figures in this day and age to recognise that it's not just essentially a one man or one woman show, is it? It's very much a team effort going forward from here. Absolutely, to be honest. And I think, particularly essential, you know, my background being dental practices. It's a small business. It's very much a part of the local community. So, you know, how you get on with your staff very much radiates into the local community and and makes such a big difference to the clientele, your clients, your patients that you get in through the door. Uh, You start very much selling to the local community in this business. Definitely. And um, did you always imagine yourself, Duncan, that you'd end up in a leadership position within your profession and really taking that active role within the local community as well? Absolutely. You know, I always, when I started off as an associate dentist working at a practice, it was never quite enough for me just to go along with, you know, how the practice is run. I would, much to the annoyance probably of the practice managers and the owners, I would quite often question what they were doing. Uh, I always wanted to start my own practice up and, uh, and to be my own boss, you know, and to make the decisions. Uh, and to do things the way I wanted them. And, and you know, when I sort of took over at Loman Dental Care, that gave myself, gave my wife uh, as well, it gave us the chance to uh, to very much shape it uh, in our image and to run it exactly the way we think a successful dental practice, a successful business should be run. It's really interesting that you mentioned uh, your time as an associate uh, dentist there, Duncan, as well, because you say that you were very engaged with management in uh, discussing the ways that certain things should be done. Are those the sorts of qualities that, say, you would look for in um, staff going forward on the recruitment side of things as well? Absolutely. Well, yeah, I would, uh, even in my, even already in the time I've spent, you know, at Lobans, uh and with even the associates that we have had, uh, you can tell straight away where there's a spark in an associate, where there's a drive that they obviously they want to have their own place. They've got the drive to get out there and uh, start one up, buy a practice. And there's very much, you can see the difference between people like that and then the associate that's quite happy coming into work, getting on with things, uh, just doing the job, going back home, uh, forgetting about it. And 
those types of people that have their merits, don't get me wrong. And I suppose when you've got your own place, you very much you want to have those ones that are quite happy just coming and doing the job and going home, and that's enough for them. You know, there is always a place for people like that. Definitely. Um, there always has to be a place, I suppose, for people with different qualities within um, any sort of a business. Um, we talked there about um, people who've got those ideal leadership qualities that you look for, that drive and that determination, as it were, um, those that just don't sort of go home and forget about the, uh, the job in one way. Um, do you think that great leadership figures, Duncan, are born with such qualities or is that something that you can perhaps learn over the years? Now, I would, honestly, I would say that uh, people are born with it. People just innately, their personality, they want, they've got the drive to go out there and, and achieve things and get things. Uh, and there's very much, and they pull other people along with them. Uh, and I, I might be young and I might be naive, but I still, I don't think that you can teach someone that. I think they very much either have it or they don't. Uh, and and at the same time, they will always bring the people that don't have it, they'll bring them along with them if they're a good leader. Absolutely. And would you say there are maybe some examples of leaders, either living or dead throughout history, who've maybe inspired your style of leadership as well? Well, uh, you know, I probably, because it's my wife and I that have the practice, I would probably say uh, for me and myself, dare I say it, it would maybe be more of a I'm uh, maybe more of a uh, a John Major type, whereas my wife is the Margaret Thatcher. Uh, that might be a, a good analogy for it. You know, I, I think certainly, and I think you do need that as well. I think that's what works really well here is that we have a dynamic. You've got uh, both of us have very different qualities which play off each other nicely and create the full picture in terms of leading the practice and running the practice. Uh, I definitely would say I look more to the softly, softly approach, though non-confrontational uh, as well, uh, in terms of motivating, encouraging and, and managing the staff. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, both of those figures, uh, John Major and uh, Margaret Thatcher there. If either of them were to walk in and address the staff at Lomond um, Dental Practice, so what do you think that they might say to the, uh, those in the office? What would they say? My goodness. Well, I know that our staff would probably have uh, some effects with Margaret Thatcher, but um, mm. but no, I think they would. Uh, they would tell them to. Uh, I think they would. They would actually probably just give them a good pat on the back. Um, I, the staff here are, are so good. They work so hard. Uh, they, uh, for, and to be honest, in terms of. In our business, you know, dental nurses were restricted in the NHS of how much we can actually put up their, their wage. You know, the staff work so well, so hard uh, caring for patients. But uh, I, I think any person, you know, an authority coming in here would, would really acknowledge that and congratulate and, and encourage them. Yeah, absolutely. And with that in mind, um, do you think that good leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK and it's credited duly? No, if anything, I would say the States in America, uh, in the US, I would say it's far more celebrated. Uh, in, if anything, in Britain, um, there's a, I would say there's a culture where if anyone becomes too successful, if anyone, you know, with leaders and things, I would say there's a, it's almost the opposite. You know, uh, there's an analogy my 
initial, my first boss in dentistry said to me that in the States, you know, as a dentist going into work, you want to drive the nice car in because the patients would see, oh, well, he's making a bit of money and uh, he must be good at his job. Whereas in Britain, you want to drive in your beaten up old second car there. Uh, because if you drive anything better, there's a little bit of suspicion that you're making too much money. Yeah, so I would certainly um, agree with that. I think um, if um, somebody does um, essentially come out into the public eye in such a way, I mean, it can leave them very much in the firing line for criticism as well as credit, can't it? Oh, very much so. And, and to be honest, you can't really go in too fast. You know, I suppose it's the same anywhere. You know, I think anyone that's sort of jumped to come straight into a workplace and try and sort of, you know, really enforce your views and force the way you want it straight away, you'll get pushback. You know, you've got to just, I think you really do have to do it in a big grand way. And I would say, particularly in Scotland anyway, uh, the culture, you know, you can't, there's not the same respect either for a profession, for a leader, uh, a professional though, a dentist, you know, it's not the old, old days where the nurses would make you tea and things or, you know, pretty much run after you. It's very, you're kind of all on the same level in a certain way. It's such a fine line nowadays. It really is. You just cannot, you can't rock the boat. You've just got to, you've got to be very good at trading that line to be a good leader. Yeah, I think that's uh, very true. Um, one leader, especially um, recently, who's come under um, a little bit of criticism um, and also a little bit of praise as well is uh, Boris Johnson, of course, for his approach to the whole COVID-19 outbreak recently. Uh, compared to some countries such as China and Italy, where they went into lockdown quite quickly, we did take a very much less hands-on approach where there was money there, there were procedures in place, but we did in many ways sort of just wait to see what happens with it before sort of taking real action. Um, as a leader, if we take that away from politics would you prefer to sort of dive in and get on top of a situation as soon as possible Duncan or would you tend to just let things play out a bit and see how things develop before you take action uh, no way do you know I would agree again just like I was saying a softly softly approach I think you've got to introduce ideas gradually and actually to be honest I would say um, Boris if anything has done that the government have done that it introduced the idea of What's going to be happening, I'm sure, imminently, gradually, over the weeks, slowly but surely, I've introduced it. In a country where, let's face it, nobody is used to being told what to do and what they cannot do. And I think it has to be introduced gradually to avoid, again, a backlash. Just exactly what it would be in a small business, probably. I think we've done it exactly the right way uh, in doing it, a softly, softly, gradually approach. Yeah, I think that's um, absolutely right, and especially in um, a country such as the uh, the UK, uh, for sure. Um, I'm conscious of uh, running out of time, Duncan, but before we do wrap things up, um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for yourself, for Loman Dental Practice, and what you hope to achieve in that time as well? Well, it's certainly, since you first contacted me, it's, uh, it's certainly changed the, uh, the sort of current climate, you know, and the uh, ramifications of the virus are actually, I think, going to impact the industry for a long time. We've been told that we cannot use uh, our high-speed drills or uh, any kind of thing that creates aerosol. And so that really is most dental treatment. So if this is now the new normal, uh, I actually don't know where dentistry is going to go because I don't know when we'll be able to start practicing routine dentistry again, actually, without huge 
huge amounts of new uh, PPE uh, equipment facilities to to allow us to safely see patients. So I think really, oh, it's very much uh, damage limitation over the next twelve months, uh, over the next few months. Really, it's damage limitation trying to keep things going, trying to keep the practice open for the community to get people in uh, to, uh, to get people out of pain. Uh, I think it's just going to be a challenge now, uh, surviving uh, and trying to adapt to this new normal uh, of coronavirus. It's really interesting that you mentioned that and really sort of lift the lid on the implications that it has for the uh, the dental sector. And uh, um, I really hope as well, Duncan, that we can have you back on the programme maybe in a few months' time just to see how things have uh, panned out in that regard. Um, but for now, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the programme and thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure, like I say. We now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was waiting patiently in the wings Mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that 
this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, 
everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but 
what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you, mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, 
especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and an incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. 
and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, f- it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised, and um, we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing, not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC Andrew wearing re- uh, wearing red. So it w- what what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is r- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.